prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning needed to be reminded the truth of your gospel. We are so quick to forget what you have done and what you have called us to. Help us this morning to consider the words of Jesus. Lord, help me in my weakness to preach your word faithfully. Lord, help all of us as we hear from you today. Amen. What choices would you have made differently if you knew how it was going to turn out? History is littered with examples of choices that people have made and probably regret because they didn't know how it would turn out. On New Year's Day in 1962, Dick Rowe, a talent scout for Decca Records in London, turned down the opportunity to sign a four-piece band from Liverpool in England because guitar groups are on the way out. And so the Beatles went on to sign with someone else. In 1976, Ronald Wayne sold his 10% share in a small IT startup company back to its co-founders for 800 bucks. Today, his 10% share in Apple would be worth about $280 billion. Amazingly, apparently, he doesn't, re- he doesn't regret that one. It's not quite on the same scale, but I definitely regret having KFC, like, every time. <laughs> Are there choices that you would have made differently if only you knew how it was going to turn out? Today, as we come to the end of our sermon, our series on the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus wraps up his teaching by laying a choice in front of each one of us. He's been laying out for us this beautiful picture of what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's the gospel-shaped life under Jesus the King. And it's a life that we can't just pay lip service to, Jesus. With an external veneer of good works, fake chimneys won't cut it. No, what Jesus wants from us, what he demands from his disciples, is what he calls true righteousness. Righteousness is all about doing God's will. But the true righteousness that Jesus demands has to do with our hearts. He wants us to have hearts that are turned towards God, dependent upon him for grace, that love him, and then overflow into a fountain of good works of obedience to God. It's not easy. It's not shallow. Jesus says it will result in suffering and persecution for being known as his follower. But he says it's the blessed life. It's the way to full, flourishing, abundant life, the kind that we long for and God created us for. At the end of his sermon, Jesus lays a choice before us. Do we want the life that he is offering? And he makes it very clear the consequences of our decision. When we respond to Jesus, there's no way we'll be able to say that we didn't know how our choice was going to turn out. And the stakes are much higher than signing the Beatles or missing out on some money. Jesus uses three images of the choice before us. The first one is the choice of two roads. Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
Maybe you've seen those motivational posters that say, life is about the journey, not the destination. It's got a background with a, a road through some beautiful mountains. Jesus says this is rubbish. He shows us two roads, two journeys, and tells us to lift our eyes up and see the destination of where they're heading and make a choice. One road is broad and easy. The gate is wide, but it leads to destruction and to death. The other road is narrow and difficult. It's hard to get through. The path is long, but at the end, the destination is life. Maybe in your mind, you think that the difference between these two roads is the difference between doing bad things and doing good things. That's how we often think about this passage. The broad and easy road is for those who don't want about living, who don't worry about living godly lives. It's the road of the sexual immoral and the drunkenness and living for material gain. Those who satisfy worldly desires. And the narrow road is for good people who do their Bible readings and show up to church every Sunday and live a visibly godly life. Now, the broad road is for those who are living worldly lives of selfish indulgence, but it's broader than that. Remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's got his disciples gathered around him and the crowds listening in. And he says, if you want to be part of his kingdom, you need a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees and the scribes. We think of them as the bad guys in the Bible, but in Jesus' time, they were the good guys. They were the most righteous, the holy, godly people you can think of. It's kind of impossible to think how you could be more righteous than these guys. But Jesus is saying that they are on the broad road. Because the broad road isn't just about doing bad things versus doing good things. Just like the rest of Jesus' sermon, it's about what is going on in our hearts. And whether we're pursuing the true righteousness of Jesus' kingdom, where our hearts are turned to God. Jesus is not indifferent to doing good things. A heart that is truly turned towards God will make itself known in obedience to him. But the broad and easy way is a way of external righteousness, skin-deep religious piety, good works, but hearts that are hard towards God. The thing is, that way appears like it's a good way to go. It's broad and easy. It's a wide highway with no potholes. You can just stick on cruise control, crank up the stereo and cruise along. It's appealing. The way of external religion is attractive because it's easy. It doesn't take self-reflection. And we only have to think about what's on the outside. There's no real urgency to repent sin, which comes from our hearts. We don't have to do the hard work of looking inside and examining our hearts to see where they're at. It means that we can avoid persecution for being a follower of Jesus, because skin-deep religion can be flexible with how devoted we are to him. We can slip in and out of acting like a Christian whenever we feel like it. You don't have to stand out from the crowd, because there are plenty of others on this road. But Jesus says to look up. If that's the road that you're on, lift your eyes up and see the destination. Because the journey may be cruisy, but the road leads to destruction. Is that the road that you're on? 
Maybe you like the morality of Christianity. It seems like a good way to live life. Maybe you figured out that Christians are nice people. They're good to hang around. So maybe you're working on being like them. Maybe you haven't realised before that being a Christian isn't just about doing good things. Jesus say, says that the broad and easy way, it's the way that leads to destruction. And he's clear on the outcome of your choice. When the Lord Jesus returns as judge, the thin veneer of skin-deep righteousness will be stripped back. He will see beneath what's going on in your heart, and it's your heart that he really cares about. And on that day, it'll be too late to change your mind. Before then, though, he offers a better way, the narrow gate, the hard way. It's the way of true righteousness that the kingdom demands, that begins with the heart and then flows out into good works that he's described over the last three chapters. It's the way that's seeking reconciliation with our brothers and sisters rather than harbouring grudges. It's the way that delights in sexual purity from the heart, not just begrudgingly restraining yourself. It's the way of loving your enemies because that's how God has first treated us. The narrow way isn't a showy, outward religion that lives for the praise of others, but quietly obeys God for his honour and praise. The narrow way treasures external reward, sorry, eternal reward rather than the worldly things, and trusts our generous Heavenly Father with providing our daily needs. All of that requires much more than just looking religious on the outside. The narrow way isn't about working really hard. It's too hard, impossible on your own. Instead, it requires us to come to Jesus at admitting that you can't do it on your own. Coming to Jesus, humbly confessing your sin and asking him to work on your heart, on your desires and your affections and your motives to turn them towards him and then live out that true righteousness. It's the more difficult way. It might even result in suffering and persecution for righteousness' sake. Jesus says kingdom people will be persecuted and lied about on his account. It's hard. It's costly. And from the outside, there's not much appealing about it. If life really was about the journey and not the destination, why would you choose it? But Jesus says again, lift your eyes. Look to see where the road ends. This is the road that leads to life. It leads to life with God in the kingdom of his son. When he returns and judges our hearts, it's the ones who have travelled the narrow way that will be welcomed into his presence. It's not that we get heaven as a reward for our hard work. The destination is a gift. We're saved by God's grace and his mercy to us in Jesus. But whoever comes to Jesus for mercy and grace would have travelled the narrow way. They're the ones who will be welcomed into Jesus' kingdom. And more than that, even though that the gate is narrow and the road is hard, Jesus says it's actually following the way of this life that is flourishing and abundant. It's the life that we all long for now. 
Your best life now isn't the easy road cruising along. Right now, the best, most fulfilling life you can experience is the one that lives for Jesus' kingdom now. Your best life lives in the fallen world in a way that corresponds to Jesus' coming reign. Jesus holds it out to you in the gospel. But the attractive ease of the Broadway means it's easy to be led astray. So therefore Jesus wants us to beware about who we listen to. And so he says in verse 15 where we need to look out for two kinds of fruit. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. False prophets are people who claim to be teachers of God's word but are really leading people astray. It's not a new problem. It happens all throughout the Bible. True prophets who call people to heartfelt repentance are often in conflict with false prophets. People who say that everything's fine, you don't need to stress, God's going to bless you, no need to repent. And it's just as much as of a problem today. In some cases, it's easy to spot health and wealth teachers on TV who want to rip people off. But then people are still led astray. But sometimes it's also a lot harder to discover. Because even though these teachers are ravenous wolves whose ultimate aim is to devour their sheep, they come dressed as sheep themselves. They conceal their true identity behind a cloak of piety. And what they teach sounds orthodox. They look like one of us. They look like a Christian. But their aim is destruction. They want to use you and me for their own purposes, for financial gain, for feelings of power, controlling people, even sexual immorality. And so Jesus wants us to be discerning. We need to be careful who we listen to. And so what should we be look on the lookout for? Jesus says we should look out for their lives because eventually their lives will show what is going on in their hearts. In verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The point is clear, isn't it? There is this tree called a manchineel. Probably pronouncing that incorrectly. It grows in Central America region. And the fruit kind of looks a bit like a Granny Smith apple. But if you eat it, you will get very sick. It is a bad fruit. Apple trees produce good and tasty apples, but these manchineel trees produce bad, inedible fruit. Likewise, Jesus says if someone is coming to speak for God, but underneath they're just wanting to use people and lead them astray, it'll come out in their fruit. Fruit takes time to grow, and so we can't always rush to form an opinion. But false teachers will eventually reveal themselves. They can't help it, because bad trees always bear bad fruit. And so Jesus tells us to be discerning. We need to be alert to the danger and watch and listen closely. And what should we look for? We need to look for the fruit of someone's heart. What do you see in their character or in their conduct? Is there wholeness to them? 
Is their heart turned towards God, which then flows out of their lives? Or is their righteousness only skin deep? Listen hard to the content of their teaching. Are they calling you to repent and to follow Jesus or to turn their hearts towards him? Are they calling you to walk a narrow way that includes difficulty and suffering and persecution for Jesus' sake? Or are they teaching you to live with a thin veneer of goodness? Not to do the hard work of repentance. Is there really a narrow gate and a hard way in their teaching? And look at the effect of their teaching on their followers. Are they encouraging people to grow in faith and love and godliness? Or are they promoting ungodliness and division? But what about signs and miracles, you might ask? If someone is doing amazing signs, is that fruit that Jesus is talking about? Jesus tells us in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. These false teachers can do all sorts of amazing things. Prophecy, exorcism, miracles. They may have what appears to be a flourishing ministry. They may even do them in Jesus' name. But Jesus says, I never knew you. Signs and wonders aren't a sign of someone, aren't a sign that someone is a genuine follower of Jesus. The Bible never says that if someone does something amazing, that's evidence that they're on God's side. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Deuteronomy chapter 13 warns false prophets, prophets who can do signs and wonders but follow other gods. God commands that people do not follow these false prophets even though they do signs and wonders. Throughout the Bible, false prophets, priests of idols and other gods all do things in the Bible that look like miracles. And don't assume that because someone does impressive things or have impressive gifts, that they must be a true ambassador of Christ. Miraculous signs, great abilities aren't a reliable measure of whether someone is a true or a false teacher. The true measure of righteousness is doing the will of the Father, expressed in Jesus' words. And so look closely at the lives and the teaching of the people that you listen to. And that includes me. Test my words against scripture. Come, question me, challenge me how I live and how I treat my family. That doesn't mean you should expect your elders or your Bible teachers to be perfect or that they will never make mistakes in their teaching. But they should be actively working on the true righteousness that Jesus demands of all his disciples. They will be repenting of their sin turning back to Jesus for grace and forgiveness, growing in holiness and loving God and loving others from a heart that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit. Be careful who you listen to, that you do not be led astray. Building your life on false teaching will lead to destruction. And so Jesus shows us the last image that he uses in verse 24. He lays out a choice of building on two foundations. 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will, sorry, and does them, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat it against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Old Testament wisdom books, like the book of Proverbs, often put people into two categories. Either they're wise or they're foolish. The wise one is who fears God and listens to his word. He listens to rebuke and correction. He is humble before God and others. But the fool is the one who is always right in his own eyes. He doesn't fear God. Someone rebukes him and he doesn't repent. And the fool cuts off the rebuker. He is not teachable or humble. Now Jesus takes the same image and radically defines it. Being a wise man or a fool is all about your relationship to Jesus and his words. Will you hear his words and do them? Or will you ignore them? Will you be wise or will you be a fool? The situation is the same for both builders. They both hear Jesus' words. They both build houses. And both come against storms and floods and wind. But with two very different results. The difference is in the foundation. It's between those who hear Jesus' words and put them into practice and those who hear Jesus' words but do not put them into practice. The wise man is the one who hears Jesus' teaching, his demand for true righteousness, and comes to Jesus in repentance and asking for help. He's the one with the help of the Holy Spirit who puts sin to death, who seeks to turn his heart towards God and to love him and to love his neighbour. He longs to be a part of Jesus' new heavenly kingdom, and so he lives a life now in a way that shows where he truly belongs. And when the storm comes, he'll stay standing. The storms here aren't the troubles of life. Those things will come. Sickness and sorrow, unfulfilled longing, heartache, relationship troubles, the death of loved ones. All these things will come and will challenge us. And our response will prove how genuine our faith is. Even if we're followers of Jesus, we'll face those trials and temptations. But we've seen that our Heavenly Father promises to give us everything that we need to endure them. All we have to do is ask. But the picture of storms and floods is more than just the trials of life. It's an Old Testament picture of judgment. What Jesus is ultimately pointing to here is the final judgment where he will return in glory and hold each one of us to account for the lives that we have lived. If you've heard his words and taken them to heart and you built your lives upon him, he says you'll be secure. But if we hear his words, we let them wash over us and they don't penetrate us more than skin deep, he says it's like building a house upon sand. 
Now, engineers will probably tell me that there might be modern ways of using sand as a foundation, and by that, Jesus' building techniques are out of date. But we've all seen those pictures of people who have those nice coastal houses up on the cliffs, beautiful houses that cost a fortune, no expenses spared, filled with nice stuff, and the storms come, king tide after king tide, and the constant beating of waves have eroded the foundation, and they fall into the sea. Jesus says that whoever hears his words and doesn't do them will be like the fool who built his house upon sand. It may be the flashiest house you've ever seen. Every effort may have gone into building it up and filling it full of good stuff. But when the storms of life and ultimately the great day of judgment comes, Jesus promises that that house will fall. And its destruction will be catastrophic. A life that isn't built upon Jesus' words, who hears them but doesn't put them into practice, that life will not be able to withstand the great and terrible day of judgment. And so, which choice will you make? We've come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says it's time to choose. He's laid us laid out for us what it looks like to live in his kingdom. It's not easy. It requires hard work of looking at our heart and dealing with what we see there. Not just external, skin-deep religion, but wholehearted love for God that flows into a fountain into every area of our lives. It's not easy. It will involve suffering. For Jesus' sake, It will involve turning the other cheek and loving those who persecute you. It will involve giving up your desire for human praise and worldly treasures. But he says it's the only way to live life, full, abundant, flourishing life, the life that you were made for and long for, now an eternal life in the future. Jesus has given us three images of the choice that we face. Will we take the narrow road and the hard way that leads to life or the easy way that leads to destruction? Will we bear the good fruit that comes from knowing Jesus or the bad fruit that will be cast into the fire? Will we build our house upon the rock and by hearing and doing what he says or will we not and experience eternal destruction? The choice is before us all. And we can be sure of the result, whatever choice we make. If you're not a Christian, maybe you're coming along to church to find out what it's about. Maybe you've grown up in church and you've been here all your life. And you're just realizing that you've been coasting along with surface level righteousness. Jesus puts the choice before you will you be wise? Or will you be a fool? Jesus offers you full and free life, now and forever. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead and is the one who is in charge of life and death on that final day in judgment. If you come to him in repentance, you will find forgiveness. If you build your life on his words, he says that you have no need to fear on that day. He says you're a fool to pass up on this offer. 
If that's where you're at, if you're thinking about taking up Jesus on his offer, then come and talk to me after this. But if you're already a Christian, there's something for he- something that Jesus wants us to hear too. Verses 21 and 23 are some of the scariest verses in the Bible. The idea that we could be cruising along thinking we're okay with Jesus, but we don't really know him at all. These words aren't here to cause us to doubt, but they are here to make sure that we take seriously what Jesus says. He wants us to make sure that we look closely at our lives and to ask whether we are the sort of people who don't just hear what he says, but we actually put it into practice. Are you wise, working hard with Jesus' help on your life and on your heart? Are you doing what Jesus says? Or are you a fool, happy to coast along with a bit of Christian morals when it's not too hard, happy with some moralistic therapeutic deism? Maybe as we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, you've been overwhelmed with what Jesus is asking for. You want to live as he describes here, but it seems impossible. How will you ever live out the true righteousness of Jesus' kingdom? If you feel like that, you're on the right track to understanding what Jesus is asking us to be like here. It is an impossibly high standard for us to meet on our own. If it feels beyond you, let that drive you back to the feet of Jesus rather than away from him. Because he has promised that blessing and flourishing comes from being poor in spirit. Acknowledging before him that we lack the spiritual means to do this. It comes from hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Longing for Jesus to bring about the righteousness of his kingdom that we see is lacking in the world and in ourselves. Let that feeling of spiritual poverty drive you to him. Because Jesus promises that the kingdom of heaven is yours. If you come to him, you will be filled and satisfied with righteousness. He promises that if you seek the kingdom, you will find it. Our heavenly father will provide everything that you need to live the beautiful gospel-shaped life that the kingdom of Jesus has painted for us in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus says we have a choice that there are two options before us. We can take the broad road or the narrow road. We can bear rotten fruit of external religion or good fruit that comes from the heart of knowing Jesus' grace deeply. We can build our lives on sand or build them on the rock. Jesus says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The only way into the kingdom of God is through Jesus, through the narrow gate, through following the narrow and difficult path. The way into the kingdom of God is through following Jesus and listening from him and learning from him. Jesus doesn't just want people who hear his words, but he wants them to take them to heart, from hearts that are turned towards God, people who are living whole integrated lives that flow into obedience to him. Let us ask our Heavenly Father to help us in this. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your Son, Jesus. We thank you that you have appointed him king over your eternal kingdom 
to judge the living and the dead, and also the one who offers and brings life. We pray that you will help us to listen to him, not just hear his words that he said in his sermon, but that you'll help them to penetrate down deep into our hearts so that we turn to you and to do what Jesus says. We thank you that if we do, we can be sure of the result. We thank you that in Jesus you have promised life, full, flourishing life now, and the eternal life in his kingdom when he comes back. Lord, help us in our sinfulness and our weakness. By your spirit, Lord, help us to come to Jesus and do what he says. We pray it in his name. Amen.